0: صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد صلاه تنجينا بها من جميع الاهوال والافات وتقضي بها جميع الحاجات وتطهرنا بها من جميع السيئات وترفعنا بها عندك على الدرجات وتبلغنا بها اقصى غايات من جميع الخيرات في حياتي وبعد الممات اللهم صل وسلم وزد وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم so for anyone who's coming for the first time today, uh, a couple of introductory points. And I'll try to make them quick. So First is that we do breakfast from 10 to 10.30. I don't know if that's clearly stated on the advertisements and stuff or not, but breakfast is from 10 to 10.30. Of course, if you come after that, you can still get food and you can still eat and stuff like that. It's okay. We don't have to be that uh, particular about everything. And... Uh, then, alhamdulillah, we're studying this text called "The Heirs of the Prophets" by Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali, rahimahullah. There's four sessions that have already passed. So, if you'd like to catch up, you could. If not, you'll roughly be okay. You'll roughly be okay. There may be the thing is, is that there's conversations that happen on the side of the text over time that you may have missed. That you know probably we won't go back to in the same way that we've already gone back to them, if I remember. Um, but in any case, the recordings are there on YouTube. InshaAllah, after this text, we'll start another one. So what we generally do. Finish one text, go to the next one. As one of our teachers used to say, Shaykhani Sanih, He used to say, He used to say, He used to say, he would just say this over and over again. You come and we'll read a lot of books. We'll read a lot of books. We'll read a lot of books. and So that's the idea. You come and inshallah we'll read a lot of books. And alhamdulillah, um, it's a great blessing. So that's that. I'll also say in the beginning that I am grateful for everyone who comes because. Uh, this is like what what really feels like there's a purpose to life you know (laughs) when we can have gatherings like this otherwise you just feel like you know what am i doing so alhamdulillah that we have the opportunity to gather and we have the opportunity to learn together and we can benefit from this beautiful tradition and try to understand this amazing amazing religion that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the greatest of bounties And you know, Islam is enough of a blessing, suffices us in terms of blessings. So may Allah continue to bestow His blessings upon us and uh, to be merciful with us, insha'Allah, Ameen. So we're on Chapter 5, Grazing the Gardens. I may have said this before, but just as a side point, um, (coughs) there's of course many different ways to teach. And I think, in America, the common way of teaching, and in many other places now, too, is that, like, you take a topic, you make some notes on it, you make a presentation, and then you take it, and you take it as, like, a structured class, and you kind of finish it like that. And, you know, to be honest, as someone who was born in this country, and raised in this country, and went to school in this country, that was what I was kind of accustomed to, and what I largely expected. And so, oftentimes, when I would go to gatherings where the teacher would sit and read from the text, and belabor every single point, and read each line, and comment on the line, and bring side commentary on the line, and everything else, oftentimes I would get bored, or I would get impatient. And, uh, however, you see me here doing the same thing. (laughs) So you you know what my conclusion was over time, was that uh, as one of the righteous people in our era said about this method, that this is a method that has produced generation upon generation of people of knowledge. That much we can say. So we can say that for sure, this is tried and true. You know, some things we might try them. They might have some success. They might have some better times, worse times, you know. Uh, a little bit of crying from babies is okay. If it gets a lot, a lot, then you know, obviously it's a lot. But a little bit is, come to that nice, it's all right. Um, so this method has produced people of knowledge. It produces a level of um how should I say? It produces like a, a different level of strength in the in the content. One feels really strong. Like I really understood this, I really got this, and then when you review it, when you read it again, you read it again, it really kinda settles and then you can build upon it. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of Islamic education that is oftentimes lost actually in Western education in my, you know, humble estimation, is that Islamic education was very, I mean, they do it in the West, but the way that we did it really was great. Like, it, it scaffolded information in a way that made it so that, like, for example, when you're studying Aqidah, you might start in middle school, and you might study, like, the, the text of Imam al-Dardir and Kharidah. Actually, probably in, in elementary school, you'll read Imam al-Dardir's Aqīda and then when you get to middle school, you'll do his Khirīda. And then when you get to high school, you do a commentary on the Khirida, And then you get to college, and you do a commentary on the commentary of the kharidah. So by the time you get to college, you have the foundation down in a way that you would it's not possible to have it down that way otherwise. Whereas like when you take a little bit, you take a little bit, you take a little bit, it doesn't always result in the same thing. And so <coughs> one of the things that we do here often in the majlis, which of course is new to San Diego, it's only our fifth gathering, but we've been doing this for five years in Orange County. So... One of the things that we've tried to do over time, is to, <coughs> is to retext, text And surprisingly, subhanAllah, you know, many people would often tell us, Oh, this is too difficult for people, it's too hard for people, they don't want that, just give them reminders, things like this. And what we found over time is that especially for people who were like raised here and stuff, they like it, they're okay with it. And they're happy because they're like, <coughs> finally we feel like we're getting something, and we understand how it comes together. And this is one of the things I was telling the students in the school. That to me Islamic studies is not Islamic information. I may have said it here too, but Islamic studies is not Islamic information. Like you learn a hadith here, you learn a story there, you learn a nice thing there, it inspires you, it's really nice and really good. But that's not Islamic studies, that's not the actual study of the religion. What it does, it gives you pieces, and you like them, and you might put something together in the end, and it might work, and that's great, alhamdulillah but to study islam is to really understand where everything belongs and where the pieces go and then when you put the pieces in the right place then you can actually build on it so you can get past like the elementary questions like one of the uh, one of the brothers who's a teacher in canada he posted this week and i shared it that uh, you know like vast majority of the questions actually you get in the community are very base level questions A good amount of the questions are questions that if someone studied a basic text in Aqeedah, they studied a basic text in Fiqh, like 80% of their questions will probably be answered. And eventually we have to move beyond that, you know, we have to get beyond these things. But that means that we have to sit and really study. So, alhamdulillah, that's why we started with this text, because it's all about the importance of knowledge and, you know, really understanding the importance of knowledge and, how the Prophet will send them emphasize that and so on and so forth. The next text inshallah that we're going to cover um, <coughs> is on how to be together. And that's a text by Imam al taala, called Adab al-Suhbah, the etiquettes of keeping each other's company. So inshallah after we get this down we'll go to that and we'll read and we'll read and we'll read it, as Shaykh Ali Sanih Hafidahullah used to say. <laughs> He's a beautiful personality. You know, uh, I don't know if I told his story here before. I told his story here before, Sheikh Ani and the ants? No? I don't think so. So Sheikh Ani, he, we met him actually through Sheikh Suhail Mullah, who was here a week or two ago, right? Uh, two weeks ago, I think, he was here. Uh, Sheikh Suhail and his wife, we were all neighbors in Egypt. We lived in Hadash or Omar Lutfi, and they lived on Wahid and Omar Like, we're on the same street, four or five buildings apart, you know. And we used to pray all the time in the and go to classes together, stuff like that. So he's the one who took us to Sheikh Ali first. And then at some point, we're able to go study in his home. And, um, you know, Shaykh is like an old man. And, uh, largely blind, you know. Like, he's, he can see, but he can't see so great. And, very simple, like to him his entire life is, I study this religion and I teach it to whoever wants it and I die, and alhamdulillah I'm happy you know, (laughs) that's all I'm here for and he um, you know, we used to go to his home and it was like behind Azhar in the Babzawayla area, close to Babzawayla if you go to Cairo, you should see these places do Islamic Cairo tours, see where Babzawayla is, Babzawayla was one of the old gates of the city like entry points of the city Uh, they used to leave for hajj from there but if the, the group of people Because everyone from the land They used to go together, right? So they go on their caravan from Hajj they leave from that gate And there's a masjid right close to it That Ibn Hajar al Asqalani The great Amin al Hadith, He used to give khutbah there And teach tafsir there and stuff So, I mean, Cairo's like that It's amazing So he lived just outside Bab It's a very poor area And, um You know, we used to go to his home And his living room Um i don't think his living room was like the size of one of these rugs maybe maybe his living room was the size of one of these rugs and the bedroom is like right there super close and there's no kitchen the kitchen is just a stove that's placed in the hallway on the way to the bathroom you know um and that was his whole home and his wife was alive then uh, I forget her name, was it Aisha or Fatima, I feel like it's one of those two, but anyways his wife was alive at that time, he used to just call her al and he used to like be Fakhur bil-haqqa, he used to say like al-haqqa, al-haqqa ta'fid al-Qur'an, ta'fid al-Qur'an al-Qur'an you know, she would say, he would say like the haqqa, she's a hafida. she memorized the whole Quran, she's fully blind, and she would like sit in the room, in the side, and would be reading tafsir and if she may, if someone makes a mistake reading the tafsir, then she would correct them from the room, from <laughs> sitting in the room. And uh, but subhanallah, like so much happiness, so much happiness. And for especially on Western standards, you look around and there's nothing. You know, there's like a little wardrobe, and he used to sit his chair would be there was like an electrical outlet right above his shoulder, the chair and the radio would be plugged into the outlet. So instead of turning the radio on and off, he just unplug it, he'd plug it in, unplug it, plug it in, unplug it for for the Quran Radio Cairo, which is a great station, you know? So he would like, listen to it, he'd come in, he's listening to it. And, uh, just beautiful experiences, SubhanAllah. So may Allah, have, uh, may Allah give him a long life. <coughs> Help people to benefit from him, inshaAllah. So, chapter 5, Grazing the Gardens. (coughs) In a well-known hadith, the Prophet relates, if you pass by the gardens of paradise, graze therein. The companions asked, what are the gardens of paradise? He said, circles of dhikr. Whenever he mentioned this hadith, Ibn Mas'ud would say, I do not mean gatherings of sermonizers, but study circles. A similar hadith has been been related by Anas ibn Malik. I'm going to read maybe... uh, Another paragraph and then I'll comment. al Khurasani said, Khurasan is Mawra al nahr Central Asia, you know, um, behind the river. In Arabic they call it what's behind the river. Central Asia was a great center of Islam for hundreds and hundreds of years. Like produced some of the greatest ulama that we had. Some of the greatest scholars that we had were from there. al Khurasani said, gatherings of dhikr are gatherings to study the lawful and unlawful. How to buy and sell. How to perform well the prayer and the fast. The laws of marriage and divorce. How to perform the pilgrimage and similar matters. Yahya ibn Abi Kathir said, A lesson in jurisprudence is prayer. We're going to come back to these. Abu Suwar al adawi was sitting in a study circle which included in attendance a young man who exhorted the assembly to say, Subhanallah and alhamdulillah. Abu Suwar became angry and said, Woe unto you. What then is the purpose of our gathering? Okay, so we have to Take a step back a little bit. So the Prophet says that if you find the gardens of paradise, take rest in them. So they said, what are the gardens of paradise, Rasulullah? And he said, the circles of dhikr. The circles of dhikr, The circles of remembering Allah. Actually, when we uh, had our first medjah space, we had rugs that were green. Not these ones, they were a little bit more green. And we had like a little leaf template that went on the bottom of the wall. And the idea was that this place would be from the gardens of the gardens of paradise. Right? This was the idea. It was designed on that. So even when you think about uh, these rugs and things like that, the, the, the designs in Islamic uh, civilization were intentional. right? Like These are designs that uh, reflect the creation of Allah and the beauty of nature. They're designs that reflect the uh, multiplicity that comes from one right so if you look at the rug the rug has a starting point right it's in the middle and then from the starting point everything branches out so actually the rug in its design is meant to lead you back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala these things are all part of like this is how when when a civilization again when you say that the knowledge and the knowledge is layered the way that I was talking about then it makes people rooted the knowledge becomes rooted and the people become rooted so when they go to produce something, they'll produce something like this. Maybe they didn't 100% intend it. But when that's what's in the heart, then the heart pours out whatever's in it, right? So uh, these are really beautiful things, actually, that our civilizations produce. So this is a gar- it's from the gardens, is the circles of dhikr. Now, of course, like a very straightforward understanding of that would be that, you know, you sit in a place, you say SubhanAllah, you say Alhamdulillah, you say La ilaha Allah, people praise Allah together, it's a garden of paradise, and that's true. But look what these look what these people are saying. Uh, Ibn Mas'ud, Ibn Mas'ud, as we said before, is the great companion of the Prophet, he said that these gardens of, par- these gatherings of dhikr are the gatherings of knowledge. The gatherings of, what did he, how did he say it? I do not mean gatherings of sermonizers, but study circles. And the Arabic is Hinaq al fiqh. So that this is the the gathering of fiqh, the gathering of understanding what are the teachings of the religion. That's a gathering of remembering God, right? So he says that's what it is actually. And then Attah said the same thing. Yahya ibn Abi Kathir said a lesson in jurisprudence is prayer. And actually, many of the scholars, Shafi'i, Madik, they said that seeking knowledge is better than optional prayer. So you have your nawathan from the prayer, you have your extra prayers that you do in the night, you do in the day, whatever else it might be. So the seeking knowledge is better than that. You do your foundational acts of worship, alhamdulillah, you do them. And after that, knowledge takes precedent after that. Because the knowledge is what gets everything right. Knowledge puts things in their place, makes sure other things don't go out of place. Knowledge is a benefit not only to the person who learns it, but to the person who engages with the people who learn it, and so on and so forth. Then Abu Suwar, uh, there was a gathering or some people that were in a gathering, in a study circle. And someone started saying, say SubhanAllah, say Alhamdulillah, say La ilaha Allah, stuff like this. He wanted to make it dhikr, you know. And Abu Suwar, he, he got up, he, he got angry and he said, what are we in then? Like if what we're in right now, studying the studying the teachings of the religion is not dhikr, then tell me what is dhikr, right? Like he's, he got upset about it. So this doesn't mean that you shouldn't have gatherings where you make dhikr, that's fine. But it's to note that, <clears throat> for example, sometimes you see uh, two extremes. One extreme would be that some people, all they do is study, and they don't do anything to bring life back to their heart. Because not all gatherings of study bring life to the heart. Some of them are kind of dry. Some of them are very, you know, tiresome. Some of them, the teacher is very, I don't know, sometimes the teacher is just really rough. You know, the teachers are just very, <laughs> very harsh, you know. And so, you, you but so they don't do anything else, like no, no dhikr gatherings, nothing like that, to bring life to the heart. Then you have the other side too, which is very common, which is people who the only thing that they'll attend is a dhikr gathering. And I remember the disappointment the first time, <laughs> the first time that I taught a commentary on the Burda of Imam al-Busiri, uh, which is like probably the most famous poem in all of Muslim history, um, the Burda, you know, the one that's in the songs, the the song, isn't it? that's the chorus of the Buddha so the first time I taught, I thought the Buddha I remember there was like some brothers and I'm not judging them you know everyone goes for whatever they need to go for that's that's their choice right but they came thinking that it was going to be a gathering we we're singing it <laughs> And their disappointment was so profound, <laughs> you know. They just looked at me the whole thing, like, because it was a commentary, you know. spent, I don't know, we only did the first three chapters, and it took like ten or eleven sessions, you know. So they they didn't. That's not what they were looking for, you know. So there's there's these not to, not about them in per se, but you might have people who they'll only go to gatherings if they could, and they'll never actually learn. And it's good to do both. Not everyone has to be a scholar, but everyone should be a student. Not everyone has to be a scholar, but everyone should be a student. And alhamdulillah, that you know Allah has put the love of his religion in the hearts of the believers, such that they, they love to sit in these gatherings and um, they love to benefit and learn more and so on, which is really amazing. <coughs> this indicates that the gatherings of dhikr are not merely uttering the words subhanallah, Allahu Akbar, Alhamdulillah, and similar meritorious phrases. Notice what he says, and similar meritorious phrases. So he's not saying that that's bad. He's just saying that uh, it's not only that's not the only meaning of the gatherings of dhikr. Rather, they include those gatherings in which the commands of Allah, his prohibitions, the lawful and the unlawful, and that which he loves are discussed. Perhaps this later form of dhikr is more beneficial than the former since knowledge of the lawful and unlawful is obligatory for every Muslim in proportion to his needs. As for mentioning Allah with the tongue, it is largely voluntary and only rarely obligatory such as dhikr in the mandatory prayers. So this is an important point. There is an understanding in our religion of what you have to know and what you don't have to know and things that you have to do and things that you don't have to do. Okay, It's very very important because this is a big part of putting things in their proper place. So there are things that every single Muslim is required to know. We're required to know what do we say about Allah and what do we not say about Allah. What do we say about prophets and what do we not say about prophets? If you're worried about whether or not you know that, we make it very easy for you. We say about Allah that He's necessarily existent, that He has to exist, subhanahu wa ta'ala. We say that He has no beginning, He has no end, He has no similarity, He has no need, and He has no partners, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now you know, alhamdulillah. What comes from that is that He's living, He has knowledge, He has power, He has will. He sees and he hears and he speaks, subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's, that's the basic, basic aqidah. To know why and everything else, second layer. But basic level is we have to know that about Allah. So for example, we don't say that Allah is the man upstairs. Of course, right? Muslims, we shouldn't say that Allah is the man upstairs. Because he's not a man and he's not upstairs, <laughs> subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if you said he's a man, then he would be similar to creation. And if you said that he's upstairs, then he would be limited by space. Subhana. And he can't be limited by anything, Subhana wa ta'ala. and he can't be similar to anything. He's without similitude. Um, <clears throat> we wouldn't say, for example, this comes up in places you wouldn't think, actually. But like, for example, sometimes we go through things in our lives and we can't understand them. And they're really difficult, and they're really hard. And the, tr- the tragedy of it is tremendous, and the trauma of it is great, and so on and so forth. And sometimes what we're doing, actually, when we can't come to terms with it, is because we're trying to encompass Allah with our own mind. So like, we can't understand what we're going through. It doesn't mean Allah doesn't have a wisdom. But we can understand that wisdom in the same way, of course, because He's not limited the way that we're limited. But there's like a subtle, kind of like, uh, making Allah similar to us sometimes in some of the struggles that we go through. But that's, you know, another layer. What do we say about the Prophets? We say that the Prophets were truthful, that they were trustworthy. That they conveyed their message and <coughs> that they were protected uh, from not conveying the message and you know these are the basic beliefs and the prophets and how we got it everyone has to know it, you know uh, then and when it comes to fit there's a basic amount of fit every person has to know have to know for example how do I purify myself if I in order to pray because we have to pray so I have to know how to purify myself to pray and not on hearsay. It's, it's better, you know, when we're kids, we take everything on hearsay. It's fine. You know, you take something from here, you take something from there, so on and so forth, whatever. But as we become of age, and as we get a little bit more knowledge, we should actually understand, like, where am I getting this from? What is the foundation of it? Why do I take this? How do I apply it? so on and so forth. And then I can say, for example, like many people uh, wipe on their socks when they make bouddou. But many people don't follow the conditions for that. There's conditions for it. Many people don't know, actually, what breaks their will do, what doesn't break their will do, how is it going to happen, so on and so forth. These are really simple things. We should know them, you know. Same thing with prayer. What do I do if I make a mistake in prayer? Very simple question, but I should know the answer. How? What do I do when I'm traveling? And by the way, you don't have to ask every single time. Like I said, if you study one text from beginning to end, just on these subjects, you'll get it. And then after that, you might have to ask a couple times to, like, reinforce what you already know, and then you'll be good. It'll be fine. You know, but... Uh, like, there's no reason why someone should be asking about traveling prayer for 20 years. We need to just sit down, get it. You know, sit down, get the thing in order, understand. And you might have a lot of questions. Sometimes why we have a lot of questions on it is because there's a lot of difference of opinion. So on traveling in particular, there's a lot of difference of opinion on what you can do, what you can't do, and so on. So, you know, sit with someone, go through it, and will be done. So these things we know that they're mandatory. Obligatory on every single Muslim. So what is he saying here? He's saying that there's only few cases when making dhikr is obligatory. Right? So like, I don't know, when we're in Salah, we have to say Allahu <laughs> Akbar. Right? When we're in Sujood, we have to say Subhanu ala <laughs> This is a dhikr, we have to make that dhikr. Most other times when we're making, if you're going to make Umrah, you have to say, لَبَيْكَ allahumma <laughs> umrah or something along these lines, right? You have to make some sort of dhikr that indicates that you're going into this act of pilgrimage. Uh, so there's a couple times when the dhikr is required. But outside of that, the dhikr is recommended. Say, la ilaha illallah, say, subhanAllah, and there's no limit to it. It's one of the few acts of worship that is kind of like, there's no limit on it. You do it as much as you can. And it's wonderful and it's great, but it's optional, technically, right? And so what he's saying is many of these gatherings of knowledge, they're actually teaching you the things that you have to know. In which case, it's even more important than the gathering that is teaching you, is getting you to do something that you don't have to do. Uh, So there's this idea Which he's going to go into more right now What knowledge is mandatory for the Muslim? As for the knowledge of Allah's commandments Knowing what gains his love and pleasure And what incurs his anger Such knowledge is obligatory for everyone For this reason it has been related Seeking knowledge is mandatory for every Muslim That seeking knowledge is an obligation On every Muslim How much knowledge? That's the question So does every single Muslim need to know the five opinions on what to do when you're traveling for prayer? No. But every single person who needs to pray while they're traveling needs to know how to pray while they're traveling. Does every person need to know all of the rules of financial transactions in the modern world? No. But if there's something that's related to their own personal practice, their personal investment, the business that they're doing, so on and so forth, then they have to know that thing. Obligatory, like they're sinful and we don't believe you could just do whatever you feel like and you're not worried about what the ruling on it is. We have to have some understanding of what the ruling on things is. Because Allah has given us guidance. Now, this is this is uh, that's why the Prophet was sent. Of course to teach us about Allah, but also to teach us how to live. How to put the world in order. Hence it is obligatory for every Muslim to learn the requisites of purification, prayer, fasting. Furthermore, it is mandatory for everyone who has wealth. And... <coughs> That they learn what is obligatory in terms of charity, zakat to to the needy, doing what is voluntary and what is compulsory in hajj and jihad. Similarly, it is mandatory for everyone who buys and sells that he or she learn what transactions are lawful and which are unlawful. As who said, beautiful statement, no one sells in our market except one who is knowledgeable of the religion. Look at this statement, it's an amazing statement actually, Sayyidina Omar said. So Sayyidina Omar is of course the great companion of the Prophet He's also the second Khalifa, right? So after the Prophet dies, Abu Bakr is the next ruler. Abu Bakr is the ruler for two and a half years. Then Omar he passes away. Then Omar becomes the ruler. He's the ruler for 10 years, right? So it's an important period in Islamic history. So he says, no one sells in this market of ours, except someone who knows the religion. So what is he saying? He's saying the economic transactions of this community are governed by the teachings of our religion. You don't just get to come and sell something because you feel like it in some any way that you feel like. Uh, it has to it can't contradict some of the teachings of the religion, whatever they, you know, some particulars that might be there in financial transactions. Very interesting. Uh, this similar concept should be true for anything really. Like anyone who's doing anything in the community, you know, they shouldn't be doing it unless they have a baseline Understanding of what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. Uh, a similar hadith has been related on a weak chain by Ali radiallahu who said, understanding of religion precedes commerce. One who engages in commerce without properly understanding the religion falls into usury with little chance of escaping from it. It's interesting. They fall into riba and they can't escape from it. They have to be careful. There's things that they come up with. Abdullah bin Mubarak, he was one of the early righteous people as well, he was from the students of Imam Abu Hanifa, was asked, what knowledge is obligatory? He replied, if a man does not have any wealth, it is not required that he learn the rulings of zakat. If his wealth reaches the nisab, the minimum amount of wealth that obliges uh, zakat, it is obligatory that he learn how much he should give in zakat, when to give and to whom. Other taxable possessions should be treated in similar fashion other taxable possessions, meaning zakat taxable, not like government taxable, right? You have to pay zakat. Right? The basic, basic thing for that is that the zakat nisab is roughly for, I don't know what it is right now, four or five thousand dollars probably, if I had to guess. Um, if someone is working and they make that much money, they have that much money in the bank, then the clock starts, and after a year, you see... And lunar year, you see, do they have that amount or more in their possession? And if they do, they have to pay 2.5%. Then there's other details. We don't have to get into it right now. Um, But subhanAllah, you know, one thing to note is, America is a really interesting place. What's really interesting about it is that sometimes you sit in a community and you talk about zakat, and it's inconceivable for them that someone doesn't have the nisaat. Okay. The new South, is that four or five thousand. For them, it's like assumed I have four or five thousand dollars in savings, right? And why that's why that's amazing is because a huge a huge portion of America is paycheck to paycheck. Like a huge portion. I'm not talking about a small portion. I'm talking like over fifty percent. Probably last time I checked, it was really high. You know. So. If someone's paycheck to paycheck, assuming they don't have any savings or investments or something, that sometimes people are paycheck to paycheck because they're putting the maximum in the 401k and so they don't have anything left. But assuming they're not doing that, they're like literally actually paycheck to paycheck, then they're probably on the category that receives the cat, not on the category that pays the cat, which is a huge amount of people in our community. May Allah help us uh, to not take their ha- Imam Ahmed was asked about a man, what knowledge is incumbent for him to seek? He said, the requisites for establishing prayer and the divine commandments relating to fasting and zakat. He then mentioned the basic laws of Islam and said, it is appropriate that he learn these. He also said, obligatory knowledge is that which is indispensable for performing his prayer and establishing his religion. You should know that knowledge of the lawful and unlawful is honorable. It includes learning that which is individually and communally obligatory. Some scholars have written that learning the lawful and unlawful is better than voluntary worship. Among them are Imam Ahmed and Ishaq, uh, and Shafi'i and Malik, but he doesn't mention those here. Ibn Rajab is Hanbali. So usually he'll default first to Imam Ahmed. So he says, you know, uh, among the people who send that is Imam Ahmed. Uh, another note on zakat, by the way, is that we're responsible to pay our own zakat. What that means is, if you're going to give it to someone else to pay it, you should know what they're doing with it, at some level. Um, and maybe I'll just leave it at that. And if you if you pay with a credit card make sure that you're considering that there's a 2.5 or 3% processing fee. So, if you do your calculation and you're like, oh, I owe, I don't know, $500 a cat, and then you go and you pay $500, you didn't actually pay $500 as a cat. Okay, so make sure you take for account the processing fee. Um, it's not a bad thing to put some buffer on the top of your cat, anyways. Um, just in case there's things that you miss. Sometimes we have things like Sometimes there's gift cards sitting around the house that you forgot about. You didn't realize like, oh, there's a couple hundred dollars in gift cards, I didn't count them. Or there might be some, some you know, sometimes you have cash that just <laughs> appears. You're like, oh, that was in this pocket. It was like $200. Now, now your that was off, right? So it's not a bad idea to uh, buffer it a little bit. Reluctance and giving religious verdicts. Okay, so now he's talking about, we got into, I wonder why he's, gonna, let's see what he says. The early Imams were cautious about speaking about the lawful and unlawful because one who speaks about such matters is relating information from Allah, enunciating His commandments and prohibitions, and passing on His sacred law. It was said about Ibn Sireen, if he was asked about something regarding the lawful or the unlawful, his color would change. His color would change. So Ibn Sireen is from the scholars of the Tamiri, from the uh, generation that were the students of the companions. Okay, Ibn Sireen. Hamid Ibn and his two sisters were also scholars. Um, I think one of them is Hafsa and the other one might be Maryam. But anyways, his two sisters were also scholars. He was a very interesting person. Like sometimes he would be in his gathering and he would just stand up. And they're like, what's going on? And he would say, my mother just passed by. Like She just left the house and she walked by and I saw her. So she was walking by, so I stood up, <laughs> you know. Or he'd be teaching and then his voice would go low, and it would be the same thing. Like out of respect, his mother, he saw his mother, so out of respect for her he lowered his voice, you know. So these people are very interesting people, SubhanAllah. So it says that when he was asked about the lawful or the unlawful, his color would change. And he would be transformed until he no longer seemed the same person. One of our teachers, he says often, many of these people who speak about religion, it would be better for them to go to the bar and get drunk. Just so just think about that for a moment. So many of these people who speak about religion, it would be better for them to go to the bar and get drunk. Why? Because if they go to the bar and they drink, it's their problem. But if they're speaking about religion and they're not actually supposed to be speaking about religion, or they don't know what they're talking about, or they're giving guidance that's not accurate, or they're not, you know conveying things the way that they should be conveyed, then it would have been better for them to just go do something else. It would have been much better for them. You know. Uh, because really this is a problem in our communities. There is so much misguidance. And it's like everybody has an opinion on everything. And they have no idea what they're talking about. Like someone just sent me a message yesterday. He's a very sincere brother, very good brother. but he started asking certain things, and the first thing that came to my mind is like, what is this guy reading? Because there's distinctions that he's making between terms that are not actually correct distinctions. So it's hard to explain without giving all the details. I don't want to like... Uh, this is not going to give him away, but I hope he's not listening and thinks that I'm making fun of you or something. I'm not. If you're listening, I'm not making fun of you. Uh, I love you and respect you and you always ask good questions and you're wonderful. Who did not? But, you know, sometimes you wonder like, where did they get that idea? So like... He was asking about, is it fard or is it wajib? Okay, these are like rulings in the, can you do something or not? Is fard or is it wajib? Because if it's fard, then that means it's not going to change by time or place or something like that. It'll just always be fard. And I was like, no, actually that's not like part of the, that's not the definition. (laughs) I don't know where you heard that, but like now this, your whole line of questioning is based on these definitions that weren't actually the correct definitions. You know, it's really interesting. To put it to the, you know, the majority, uh, other than the Hanafis, for them, fard and wajib is the same thing. It's something you have to do. If you do it, you're rewarded. If you don't do it, you might be punished. Okay? For the Hanafis, they distinguish between fard and wajib. It's the same in the sense of what I said, that you're rewarded if you do it, you're possibly punished if you don't. But it's different in the sense that the strength by which the fard is established is stronger than the wajib. So that if someone rejects a fard, it's actually an act of disbelief. Whereas if they reject a wajib, it's an act of like corruption, fisk, you know. So anyways, the point is, he was working with a set of definitions and distinctions that weren't even there in the first place. Um, So this is the problem. Like, you know, people say all kinds of things, especially around hadith now. In my experience, this is like one of the big topics now, you know. Uh, Hadith, and why should we trust hadith, and why should we not trust hadith, and we can't trust hadith anyways, like... I had a student say something to me recently, and I was like, wow, those are really good lines. Like, where did you memorize that from? You know, <laughs> a middle school student. And clearly someone has been saying it to them, right? And it was totally bought to them. It was totally uh, invalid, like it was totally wrong. But it was about like, you know, why we can't why we can trust hadith and this and this and this. So we had to sit there for like 50 minutes and talk about how do we get hadith And <laughs> we, we didn't finish yet the topic. Inshallah, we'll finish on Tuesday. But." My point is that this issue is uh, they were very serious about this. You don't speak in, unless you really know what you're saying. And if you don't know what you're saying, then it's better just not say anything. You know? even, even you can say something like, I don't know. It's like we were giving this test recently, Islamic uh, studies summer competition. And one of the kids asked him a question, he said, I don't know. I said, if they say I don't know, I give them 2 out of 10 instead of 0. because, <laughs> because really I should give them five because the scholars they said saying I don't know is half of knowledge so do like, you answer sometimes I don't actually know I don't know. I, off the top of my head I don't know or I don't remember or whatever else it might be I don't understand this you can say that that's totally fine I don't understand this it doesn't make sense to me it's totally fine to say but to ascribe something to Allah's religion that on your own that's a whole different it's a whole different issue so they were very serious about this and again, you know, like the, we have to keep in mind, the Prophet ﷺ, he praised, the, praised the gen, his generation, my, the best of generations is my generation, the Sahaba. And the one after them, and the one after them, right? The generation of the Sahaba, the generation of the Tabi'in, the generation of Tabi'in. These three first generations, they're the Salaf, that's what when people say they refer to the Salaf, you know, the Salaf as-Salih, stuff like that. That's the Salaf. It's the first three generations. They're normative for us at some level. Like the practice of the Sahaba, the practice of the followers of the Sahaba, those first generations, especially the scholars amongst them, their practice is normative. It represents actually what this religion is. So it's very important that when we see like, you know, uh, certain things, we understand it in that light. Atta ibn Sa'id, he said, Sa'id, he said, might be Sa'id, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I met people who, when asked for a religious verdict, would tremble as they spoke. It is related that when Imam Malik was asked about a legal matter, it was as if he were suspended between heaven and hell. Imam Malik. Imam Malik is the one, he said, I didn't sit to give answers in religion until 70 of the scholars of Medina said that I could. Imagine, like, Malik. <laughs> Malik's teacher is Nafi. Like, Malik lived in the time of the students of the Sahaba. He lived in the time of the Sahaba, you know. And he's saying, and he's in Medina. Right, like... He's in the city of the Prophet Sallallahu And he says, I didn't speak on religion until 70 people in Medina said that I could speak on religion. And then he says this, that if he's asked a question, even still, after all of that, if he's asked a question, it's as if he's suspended between heaven and hell. Imam Ahmed was extremely hesitant to speak on the lawful and unlawful, to claim that something was abrogated or related matters which others would too readily expound. He frequently prefaced his answers with phrases such as, I hope that, I fear, or it is more beloved to me. So some of these early imams, actually, they wouldn't even outright say it's haram on some things. But when you look at their answers to things and you understand their methodology, you understand that what they're actually saying is that it's haram. But they were just kind of like, it's a heavy word, I don't want to use it. Like, if if I'm not 100% sure, I'm not going to use it in that way, right? So they'd be very hesitant like that. Uh, Imam Malik and others used to frequently say I do not know. Imam Ahmed would often say on an issue about which the religious forebears had various opinions, the most likely answer is, I do not know. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's really remarkable actually. And it's important for us that, like you know, they always say in Islamic studies, it's a very, very important principle. You can apply it to everything in your life. They say, which means that the opinion or ruling that you give about something is a consequence of how you conceptualize it. Okay, so this is why like a lot of, there's people, there's certain issues in Islam in the modern world I'd actually ask someone from the West before I ask someone from the East even though I have like I've met scholars in the east they're like unbelievable but there's certain issues I'd ask them first why because the con- that's a soul water, the conceptualization is not always exactly sound you know um, meaning if I don't understand the question that's being asked to me if I don't fully get it I wish I, if I can think of an example right now I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share it but there's many cases like this you have to ask a number of questions first to really understand what is this person asking what is the situation exactly because you might say you might initially feel like oh no that's not okay or you might feel like it is or you might but then when you get the details you're like oh wait I didn't have the full picture I didn't understand the thing properly when I when I gave this conclusion right Um, sometimes we what I've seen from our community Is that oftentimes and uh, you know I fell into this and I still fall into this but so I'm not blaming anyone so we're on the same page but oftentimes we have a tremendous ignorance of our religious tradition and so you see it in the community all the time you know where it's like oh yeah it's super easy to like someone who's a who's a sheikh or any man like that's super easy to do they think it's like a weekend program you do it in a year and you're just done, right? And now you're gonna like be responsible for people's lives, literally. Um, and you know, to, but but to them, in their mind, there's nothing to it, and usually that's because they really haven't seen anything that properly, prob- probably, properly represented what it actually is in the first place. So I don't blame them for that, right? Um, I was very similar, you know, like I said, we, we came to Egypt. And we wanted to study Islam, we're going to study Islam. We're going to study Islam, to study Islam was like the, the motto of the day, you know? We're going to study Islam. So we get to Egypt and I'm sitting with one of the brothers, uh, Sheikh Yusuf Rios, Allah And he says, uh, he sits down and he's like, so what does it mean to study Islam? And I was like, we're just going to study Islam. <laughs> hey, like, we're going to study Islam. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, what does it mean? And I'm like, okay, tell me, you know? So he takes out a paper and he starts drawing all these charts and diagrams and like there's this discipline and that discipline and this one and this one is under this one and this one is under this one and there's these major works that are known in this one and there's these major works that are known in this one and so and so is this and he gives me this whole chart on what is Islamic studies, very basic, what is Islamic studies, you know? And I'm like, oh, you know? Like you hear Imam Madik didn't hear, didn't say anything until he was given permission from 70 people but you can't really understand that until you know something about the life of Manik. You know about how he was, and you know who he was, and you know who the people around him were. And you've read his books, you know. Like when we read, we were in a gathering one time where we read the Muwatta of Imam Malik. was only, you know, it was one of his main works. Uh, we read it from beginning to end. And it took like probably, I don't know, like 24, 30 hours. You know, it took like three or four full days. To read no commentary. Just read what he wrote from beginning to end. Okay? So you're like, okay, this is substantial. And he's he's brought all of these things together and he's analyzed them and he's put opinions on them and so on and so on. Like, you know, Malik Malik was like Malik would walk barefoot in Medina. At the same time that these people were extremely knowledgeable, they were very beautiful. You know? Malik would walk barefoot in Medina and they said What are you doing? He said, Well, the Prophet walked in these same places. Like the Prophet walked here, I'm gonna like wear my shoes, I'm gonna wear my sandals sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Like this is, these people are really beautiful people, you know Um, So, you know, and then the more we understand it, the more we can have respect for it You know, the more you can be like, oh You know, you hear a hadith in Bukhari And people are like, oh, it's in Bukhari, but maybe it's not necessarily sound, you know that's not entirely untrue. Maybe there's like a couple dozen hadith out of seven thousand in Bukhari that are, that are discussed. Um, but do you know who Bukhari was? Like, do you really know what this man did? What the effort he put in? You know, it's like sometimes even now. Sometimes there's a book. Uh, you know, like how long did it take Imam Zayd to translate this? We don't know. You know. You to think about these things sometimes. Actually, Sheikh Yusuf was the one who told us that. He's like, sometimes you read a book and you know that like 10 years of a person's life went into writing this book. And you order it on Amazon, and you're like, oh, it doesn't even have same day delivery. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, it's coming tomorrow. I wanted it today. You know? it's like he spent 10 years writing the book. And like the night hours after the children went to sleep And like drinking extra coffee And not and like spent 10 years writing the book And researching it And like traveling to other countries And asking questions And it's like I need it tomorrow You know So uh, That's why this is like This tradition is beautiful The more we, we dive into it The more we're like Subhanallah Like what people did to preserve the religion And to give it to us Is really tremendous Gatherings of dhikr also include gatherings of Qur'anic exegesis, tafsir, and gatherings in which the way of the Messenger of Allah is related. Discussions that include the narration of hadith along with its explanation are more complete and virtuous than those involving narration only. Virtuous gatherings also include the discussion of all the legitimate Islamic sciences along with their evidences and proofs. These sciences deal with outer knowledge and the inner knowledge of beliefs, constant awareness of Allah's watch over us, and the heart's perception of Allah's presence. The latter two comprise the constituent knowledge of Ihsan. Of So before, the major areas of Islamic studies are Islam, Iman, Ihsan. Islam, Iman, Ihsan. You'll see it over and over and over again. So what is he saying? He's saying you have the outward knowledge. And he mentions what? He mentions the rulings, which is a matter of Islam. He mentions the beliefs, which is a matter of Iman. He mentions the uh, inward states of the heart, which is a matter of Ihsan, over and over again. These gatherings also include the knowledge of humility, love, hope, patience, commitment and other states of the soul. In the hadith of the, Prophet, of the hadith of the angel Jibreel Ihsan has been de- design, designated by the Prophet wa sallam, as, as constituting part of the religion. Hence, understanding Ihsan properly is essential to properly understanding Islam. So <laughs> again, put it in its place. So there's people today who will get you to believe that Ihsan is not even part of the religion. And if you tell them, you know, but Ibn Rajab said this, then they'll give pause. Like, wait a second, Ibn Rajab said that? Like, wasn't he the student of Ibn Qayyim and he was the student of Ibn Taymiyyah? I guess that's the one, same one. He's the one who said, Ihsan is part of the religion, you have to study it, so on and so forth. So these are uh, the areas, we've gone over that. Such gatherings are better than gatherings whose sole purpose is to remember Allah by repeating the phrases, SubhanAllah, Alhamdulillah, and Allahu Akbar. This is because learning one's religion is obligatory on either every individual or the community at large. Whereas dhikr by evoking Allah is optional in most cases. We already went over that. One of the righteous forebearers of Islam entered the mosque of Basra and saw that two circles were established. In one sat a sermonizer, in the other a jurist. So this is a very important distinction. In Islamic history, this distinction is ever present. The distinction in somewhat at some level, like the conflict between the people of knowledge and the storytellers. And Ulama al qassas. The people who tell stories and the people of knowledge and this is an ever-present issue By the way, like it's not going anywhere. It's an ever-present issue. Abu Hanifa anh, the great imam, Abu Hanifa one time his mom had an issue and she, she needed an answer on a question and so he, you know, out of adab with his mom he's like so who do you want to go get the answer from? She's like, I want to go to so-and-so. He's like a good storyteller. You <laughs> know. She loves his stories. She sits in the gathering, he tells great stories. She loves hearing from his stories. You know, I'm gonna go ask him. So Abu Hanifa, he's the imam of his time. He's like, okay, let's go ask him. So they go and Abu Hanifa goes in, talks to the talks to the Shaykh. The Shaykh looks at him and he's like, You're Abu Hanifa, like how am I gonna answer the question? You're Abu Hanifa. he's like, She wants the answer from you. He's like, okay, so tell me the answer. <laughs> He tells him the answer. He's like, okay, that's the answer. Now, can you take it back to her? Like, this is this always the situation. People love storytelling. They want, but it's not necessarily uh, knowledge, right? So this is what the narration here is going. Is in one sat a sermonizer, and the other a jurist. Uh, he prayed a special prayer in which he asked Allah's guidance as to which of the two circles he should join. The person who came to these. He fell asleep then saw in his dream someone saying to him, Do you consider the two gatherings equal? If you wish, I will show you the seat of Jibreel, alayhi salam, in the circle of the jurist." It's pretty gamut. Zayd ibn Aslam was among the most distinguished scholars of Medina. He had a circle in the mosque in which he would teach Quranic commentary, hadith, jurisprudence, and other religious sciences. A man came to him and said, I saw in a dream an angel who said to the people of this gathering, This host is secure in the gardens of paradise. Then he sent down to them a tender fish, which he placed in front of them. Thereupon a man came to them and said, Verily I saw the Prophet وسلم, Abu Bakr and Umar emerging through this door. The Prophet وسلم, was saying, Come with us to Zayd. Let us sit with him and listen to his teaching. Then the Prophet them went, sat beside you and grasped your hand. SubhanAllah, can you imagine? What an amazing thing. Allahumma صلى Muhammad ﷺ. It wasn't long after this vision that Zayd died. May Allah have mercy on him. Says Zayd ibn Aslam. Despite what we have mentioned regarding the preference of knowledge to admonitions, the scholar must occasionally admonish people by relating stories to them. This is necessary to remove hardness from their hearts by helping them to remember Allah and His awesome power. The Qur'an also includes this approach. So, like the... (coughs) Kind of like the old school scholars, you would see this from them. Like, they might be teaching any subject. It might be kind of dry. And as they're teaching, maybe like every 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, they'll kind of break off into a story, tell the people something, kind of like wake them up a little bit, and they go back into the subject, you know? And of course, in the stories, there's, uh, there's important lessons as well. Hence, the learned jurist in reality is one who thoroughly understands the Book of Allah and implements it. Ali said, The truly learned scholar is one who does not cause people to despair of Allah's mercy, nor does he give them warrant to rebel against Allah, nor does he leave the Quran giving preference to other books. The Prophet along lips, and them himself applied this orientation. He used to encourage his companions in his sermons, fearing that he would otherwise overburden them. Some so that ends the chapter five. Maybe this is a good place to stop. Does anyone have any questions or comments uh, or things that they would like to share? Anyone? Questions, comments, clarifications, disagreements, complaints? Mm-hmm. Yes. My question, actually. Yes. So, with regards to the uh, the uh, you mentioned about that uh, knowledge, acquiring knowledge is more important than not not. What about um, the situation with like uh, someone wakes up for a But should they wake up for Tahajr and make Tahajr, or should they wake up and study? Yeah. It's a good question. You know, um, when I've read these statements, I've often wondered, because they specifically use nefid. And some of the scholars distinguish between sunnah and nefid. Okay, so I've often wondered, like, are they referring to all of the extra acts or are they referring to particularly nafar? So for example, like when it comes to salat, the sunnah, salat, right, is two before, If we, we'll take the Hanafi method because it will make it easier to since that's the one I follow, so it's easier for me to remember. You do two before fajr, four before dhuhr, two after dhuhr, two after maghrib, two after ashr, Right, That's the sunnah. But then there's nafar. It's like four before asr. There is four before Isha, four after Asha, like there's a lot more. If you go to Nephilim, there's a lot more. So, um, I feel like they're probably referring to specifically, like not sunnah mu'ekedah, not emphasize sunnah. And Qiyam and praying in the night is like, it's <coughs> emphasized sunnah in some ways. Like it's it's not quite Nephilim. Um, so, and what I've seen a lot of times is that people will <coughs> there's a there's a, for many people <coughs> it's like almost a trap that the nafs and the shaitan lay. So the person ends up not doing any extra worship, all they're doing is studying and then their heart actually becomes hard. And all of these great people that we read about, they used to pray in the night. You know, like we said that Abu, it said about Abu Hanifa that he prayed Fajr with the wudu of Asha for decades. I can Fajr with the wudu of Aisha for decades. I Meaning he was praying all night. And most some of the night was in prayer, some of it was in study. They'd usually do both. You know? So long The short of what I'm saying is I don't know exactly. I'm a little bit Any uh, anytime I've read that I've always wondered are they referring to all extra stuff or just extra extra? You know, there's a distinction between that and some bam. But practically speaking, if someone wakes up in the night, I think it's good that they pray, at least a little bit. At least a little bit, even if it's short. Yes, and well, I was taught that the reason why studying sacred knowledge is superior to the, the extra acts of worship is because the learning of sacred knowledge could potentially benefit more people than you it for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, But is it sunnah or is it nothing? Yeah, that's a lot <laughs> yeah. definitely, it benefits people. Definitely evades people. Um, but you know, with time, I've come to really feel, and like when you read these people's biographies and stuff, you really see that, like, I mean, for example, in the Hanafi school, it's, leaving Sunnah is very serious. It's, it's, some of the other schools are not as serious about it, but in the Hanafi school, they say that the person who doesn't pray their Sunnah, like Sunnah Mu'akkadah, they emphasize Sunnah. That's why you see sometimes especially people who don't come from Hanafi backgrounds, they're like, why do these people pray so much? Like, I've heard this from Arabs a lot. They look at Daisies and they're like, why are they praying so much sunnah? Why are they doing this? And you don't understand. Their definition is, if it's something that... Because what is their definition of sunnah mu'akkid? emphasize sunnah. It's something that the Prophet did and mostly did not leave it. So most of the time he did it. So the way they say it in the books is that someone who leaves that, they don't deserve the intercession of the Prophet and Which is a big deal <laughs> you know, It's a big deal So you'll see that like People who generally come from like Hanafi backgrounds They're very strict on their sunnah But you also see that from people of knowledge You know So I feel like I feel like sometimes If we really want to understand what they're saying We have to look at their lives It's very similar to the sunnah, right? Like we see a statement in the sunnah We have to see what did the Prophet Sallallahu do And it gives us some indication These people are telling us that seeking knowledge is better than nafilah, you know, extra prayer. When we look at their lives, even though they're the greatest people of knowledge of their times, they did a lot of extra prayer. You know? So it, I think it gives us a little bit of insight. I can say for myself that these narrations definitely deluded me during very significant parts of my life to the point that the only thing I would do is study and I wouldn't do extra worship. And uh, I think they were very at least in my eyes, very clear consequences to that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a lot of this. Yes? Um, you know, uh, the part about, uh, about Benifa, his, his wudu, him having his wudu from Isha to the Hajjur, but, um But um, how do you reconcile with Salatul Layn and Salatul Hajjur? Um Is the Salat one and the same in the Hanaf, or is it? Yeah, it's praying in the night. I don't know that there's. I know some people kind of uh, just like, what's the difference in praying the night and praying in tahajjud? Isn't tahajjud you have to go to sleep first and then you have to get up, right? So if you never slept, then that means you didn't do tahajjud, you did prayer in the night. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know that there's a distinction in like, the reward. It might be kind of like more of a terminology, terminology thing. love. Um, but There's another possibility I thought of recently, but I don't think it's the actual possibility, which is that in the Henifee school, if you fall asleep sitting down, it doesn't break your will <laughs> Like if your backside is flat, if I'm sitting like this, actually that's a little bit too leaned, but if I'm sitting like this, then I fall asleep, it doesn't break my will Theoretically, he could have fallen asleep for like an hour or something, <laughs> and his will would have still been bad. <laughs> but I've never seen that. That interpretation of it, I don't think that's what it was. <laughs> but this may benefit you on long flights, where you're trying to catch ledger and it's only like a half-hour window. It's a very useful fiqqh uh, opinion. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh. <coughs> Anyone else have anything? Okay, so, yes. Awesome. it's going to go ahead. It's like we have a special thing at the end, just so you know. I'll be quick. It's like a change of gears question, but you did touch on, like, hat and who's eligible for it and who's not friendly. And it made me think, um, you know, a lot of times you hear a story that gets passed around of, like, someone in need, right, and you don't really know, how much, like, obligation is on us to verify that the person we're getting to is actually eligible for it. Because mm-hmm. um, sometimes I can get into, like, a insulting question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, if you have good reason to believe that they're eligible, you're okay. But if, if you have reason to doubt them, then you have reasons to doubt it, you can try to give it somewhere else. Or don't give it as zakat, give it as sadaq. You know, um, this is a big challenge. Uh, part of the Islamic State was that they collect zakat, right? So the state now is taking that responsibility and they're collecting the zakat and so on and distributing it and alhamdulillah, you know, they take care of it, they're responsible. Um, But, for example, like if you give your zakat to a mashtid or something, you should know what their distribution policy is. My opinion is that any organization that takes zakat, they should have a publicly posted distribution policy. Very few do. And it should be clear. We're giving to this and this and this and this and this. And this this is how we determine it. You know? Um, Because there's a lot of issues around this. Um, And, you know, I don't want to get into the fiqh of it, but... There are certain fit opinions that are very commonly followed in our community and like basically all of the Masajid that are not... Um, I mean, like the vast majority of scholars all throughout history did not hold those opinions. So, like that you can give your money to build a building. Vast majority, like I'm talking upwards of 98-99% probably. of scholars in all of Muslim history didn't say that you could do that. You know? So I need to know, like if I'm going to give my money to the masjid so the masjid can distribute it, but the masjid's policy is actually that they just use it to pay the utilities, I need to know that before I give them my zakat. And take whatever position you want to take. I'm not saying you have to follow one position or the other. If you are convinced by the position that's looser in zakat, you're convinced by it give it to whoever you want. You know? uh, Even when I was in the masjid, one time a guy came up to me and he was like, so can we give our zakat to the masjid? for the expenses of the masjid and I was like, we don't take that position here and uh, we don't do that. When I was in Irvine, I don't know what they do now, I think they still have the same position, but we didn't do that when I was there. And um, he was like, okay, but there are scholars who said you can do that, right? I was like, yeah, there are. And he's like, okay, so I'm going to intend zakat and I'm going to put it in the a box or like the general expenses box and not the zakat box because then you guys won't use it on the masjid. I want it to get used on the masjid. I was like, So you you can follow whatever you want to follow, you know? I'm not forcing you, but we don't, policy-wise, that wasn't the policy position that we took. Anyways, um, nonetheless, I'm not trying to start fights in San Diego. I think Many of the misadgenants in Orange County took the policy that we took then, and many of the imams in Orange County take that policy too. But I think San Diego's probably the opposite, so I'm not trying to start fights, you know? (laughs) Anyways, uh, yes? You talked about credit giving the uh, credit card and accounting for the 2.5%. But if you know a certain organization pays 30% of what you give them for administrative costs, does that mean as Zakat I would have to give 30% more? Well, it depends mm-hmm. on the position you take on administrative costs. So, <clears throat> there's a fifth discussion on who qualifies. And the people that are mentioned in the verse about Zakat, one of them is Al Aamilun Ali. Right? Is the the people who work in distributing it, collecting it and distributing it essentially. And so there's a discussion on you know, whether or not that so like if an organization takes zakat, can they take a portion of that zakat and use it for the administrative cost on the on the opinion that it's from this category? There's a difference of opinion on it. So I try to give my Zakat to organizations that do 100% distribution, personally. Um, But there is out there, like in Europe, there's this body of Zakat, you know, research and stuff, and the position they took was that a maximum of 12.5% can be spent on the administrative cost, uh, on the premise that it's like, what is it? One-seventh, I think, something like that, you know? It's like, out of the categories, it's one of the categories, so it shouldn't go more than that percentage of the total. They, they, Chaffees are like them. Hemaphys aren't like that. But there's all, there's all kinds of different opinions on a lot of details here. But uh, I think it's good to look into it and kind of feel what you're comfortable with and then decide accordingly. But if one is okay with people taking, you know, a certain percentage off the top for their administrative fees, then you're okay with it. It counts as a count. You know, it would be from the categories. That's why they're doing it they're taking that position. But I think some organizations are a little bit lax with that. You know, they start taking, like you said, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60% of you as a cat, is administrative fees. And you know, like, okay, so how much of it is going to the poor? Like, really, the people who really need it, you know? Uh, I'd rather just give it directly, like find someone who's poor and give it to them. Then I don't lose several hundred dollars on someone's, I don't know, 401k or something. <laughs> like it? All this stuff, like there's... We need... Anyways, Allah lot Allah hukus. I don't want to cause too many problems. Allah hukus. This is important, because zakat is really important. And that it gets into the hands of people who deserve it is really important. So it's 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 very essential that we get these things right. Um, so alhamdulillah. Yes, then? Um, can you address the controversy of Mm. He's giving it overseas. Mm. Yeah, many of many of the schools say that your zakat should be paid locally, and the only exception to that would be that if there's a greater need somewhere else. I mean, if some if a place is like dying of starvation, then you know, uh, it's a pretty severe need, right? Uh, so some I think some of the places sometimes when we send we are actually sending to places that are in very severe need, but there's also a lot of need here too, especially, the Zakat has to be paid to Muslims, you know, so that's one, one thing, isn't? It? it's supposed to be taken from the wealthy among the Muslims, given to the poor among the Muslims, uh, a that you can give to anyone, char- general charity, but Zakat needs to be going to Muslims, so, but even here, there's a lot of Muslims who are in very dire straits, you know, many people who don't have homes, many people who don't have enough to pay rent, they're in hotels, they're homeless, people who don't have food, you know, so, you know, I personally lean to local stuff. But again, I don't want to start with too much controversy. <laughs> I think that eventually, if, if you're sending all your money somewhere else, if you're getting all of your money from one place and you're sending it all somewhere else, if you just step back for a second, you know, that's going to have also consequences. To the development of your community, to your contribution to the place that you're in, you know, so on and so forth. So it doesn't have to be one way or the other. But, but you know, there's a difference of opinion. But basically usually they say that if there's if the need is greater, then the need is greater. Uh should we do the surprise? InshaAllah? Do you want to come up here or do you want to sit there? What do you prefer? Okay. Come on down This is Marnie. Am I saying that right? Marnie. She's going to take her shahada. Do like stand or sit? You here? can sit. Just okay. sit here. Be comfortable. Okay. If that's comfortable for you, or if standing is more comfortable, you can stand. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me stop the